Thank you for joining us for our Renewal City Church podcast. If you're looking for ways to get involved, join us on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. at the Roxy Theater in Longview. Or find us online at rcclongview.org. We hope you're blessed and that this message finds you well. Uh, So as I said, we're going to be doing the Gospel of John. Uh, We have a a team of people who have been meeting and kind of strategically planning series together. And we were meeting a number of weeks ago and talking about what are we going to do next and uh, someone brought up the idea of teaching through a gospel, and, and I, I think my initial reaction was, oh, I feel like I've, I've done that before, and I don't want to be like reruns, right? I don't want to do that. So anyhow, I went looking back into the history of all the different series and sermons that we've done, and I discovered that I did. I, we taught through the book of Mark, so I knew I'd done it before. It was in 2013, <laughs> 2014. So it's, it's been a while, like eight, nine years. So anyhow, um, so that had me thinking, well, we, we probably should teach through another gospel at some point. I mean, we are a Christian church. Jesus is kind of a big deal. And, um, and this can be a great opportunity to get back to that. So, um, so we're going to be teaching through the gospel of John. Now, the thing about Scripture and the Gospels, in the Bible, there's four different Gospels that are accounts of Jesus' life, his teachings. And, and the cool thing about having all four of them is that each one gives you a little bit different of a perspective on, on his life and on what's happened. And it also encourages us, because this isn't just the testimony of one person, but it's a group, a, di- a group of people who saw something from different vantage points, but all testifying to the same truth. You could imagine if you were in court and someone was suing you for some unreasonable reason and you had four witnesses here to tell to say what really happened, you're better prepared for that than if you had no witnesses, right? Or if you only had one or two witnesses. And so these four gospels in scripture are like four different witnesses um, talking about Christ and his life and what happened. Really, I think one of the coolest things about Scripture is that it's it, the Bible that we have was compiled by, I mean, estimates are around 35 different authors over the course of, you know, well over a thousand years. And so you have this one narrative, this one truth that it's all testifying to, but it's been put together across eons of time and across all these different authors coming from different backgrounds and different times to do it. And and in some ways, it's like if you were showing up to court because someone was suing you unreasonably and you had 35 witnesses, that would be even better than if you had, you know, one or two or three or four. So anyhow, these, these different uh, gospels are really great and, and these different perspectives are great. Now, it's the same story told in different ways. How many of you have ever read a book and then watched a movie? Same story told different ways. And maybe there's some differences in between the book and the movie, and 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 maybe, or, or another thing that they're doing now with movies is they're remaking old successful movies, hoping that there'll be new successful movies. It's like, why write a new story? We'll just take this old movie that was somewhat successful, and we'll remake it with new actors and, and a little different script, and then maybe everyone's going to love it. Um, now, 
some of us who maybe had some nostalgic connection to the older movies might feel like the new ones aren't as good. Or oftentimes what you'll hear about a movie is the book was, the book was better, right? Um, which, you know, I think that's just because your imagination is better than what they can do in movies right now. So that's why the book was better. So take credit for that. If you said the book was better, it's because you have a powerful imagination. I have read many books and seen the movie and thought, man, the movie was better. My imagination <laughs> is a little weak, but yours is strong. Uh, this last weekend, we watched the new Batman movie. Has anyone seen the new Batman movie? All right. Um, if you've seen it or if you haven't seen it, I'm going to apologize because I'm going to ruin it for you. It's terrible. It's just terrible. Uh, but Batman's one of those characters who's been examined in movies for ages with different, different actors, different storylines, all, all telling the same story, all looking at the same character. It's, it's gone on for decades now, which that's a pretty long time. Uh, which which if, it, if it tells you nothing else, it tells you that there is money to be made on Batman, right? Money to be made on Batman. Um, so uh, we watched it. And, uh, and as you, and I've seen, I think I've seen all of the Batman movies. I haven't seen all of the cartoons, but I've seen all of the movies. Um, if, you've, if you've seen them all, you've seen Batman from a number of different angles. You probably would feel, especially if you were watching them and paying attention, you probably feel like you're a pretty, you've got a pretty good understanding of who Batman is. You might also feel like there's a, a bit of an overload on Batman information out there. Um, but each one sort of gives us a different perspective and, and maybe arguably a valuable perspective on what Batman is. Now, the other thing is that when you have all these different stories telling the same story, all these different versions telling the same story, you know, and this is maybe a little bit more subjective, but you know that some stories, some movies are better than others. You know, some Batmans are better than others. Um, just... I don't, it's the old Batmans. Now, I don't want to offend anyone because I know some of you grew up on the Batmans. In fact, somebody in this room said, the only Batman I've ever seen is that guy on the left over there. I won't out them because I don't want to completely nullify their street cred in our church. But um, look at that guy, like hashtag dad bod, right? <laughs> Anyways, um, some Batmans are better, and, and I would argue, and this is purely subjective, I'm not saying this is gospel truth, I probably shouldn't say it from the pulpit, but I think some Gospels are better than others. The Gospel of John is my favorite one. I, I love the way that John tells the story. I love the way that it all unfolds. It's, it's my favorite by far. Now, I wouldn't have said this except for I know, because I've done my research online, I know that the Gospel of John is among favorites among many Christians in a, wide, uh, in, in, in a wider uh, sample than just myself. And so there's something about this book that is rich and wonderful and different than the other Gospels. Uh, the other three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are called the Synoptic Gospels, meaning that they kind of work together to tell the same story. You say, isn't that what we're saying all of Scripture does, isn't that what John does? Yes, yes, yes. It's just those 
three are based on a lot of the same source material. Uh, they even have portions of each other that are identical, and they kind of ring the same way. Um, they're a little bit different on their own, but they're, they're, they're more similar than John. John's kind of sitting out in left field telling the story very differently. Where the other three Gospels read maybe a little bit more like an action-packed adventure story. I mean, here's who Jesus was. Here's what he did. Here's a few lines that he said, a little catchphrase here, and then we move on, and now he's doing this. The book of Mark is known especially for being more of an action story. I mean, it says immediately all the time. Then immediately they did this. Then immediately they did that. You would almost think that they were time traveling with Jesus because everything's happening immediately. And, and, and then, you know, I mean, obviously the Gospel of Matthew has more than just bumper sticker statements of Jesus. That's where we have the, the record of the Sermon on the Mount that's several chapters long of this teaching that Jesus gave. Um, I, we're, we think we've been watching The Chosen, which is a, a TV series on the life of Jesus with our friends at the community church on Wednesday nights. And we think that next week is going to be the Sermon on the Mount because Jesus has been working hard with his disciples to prepare for a sermon and we think it's happening this next week. So if that gives you incentive to be over at Longview Community at 6 p.m. on Wednesday, uh, meet us over there for dinner in the Chosen. Um, the Gospel of John is, is written differently, uh, especially in how it records what Jesus said. You don't have a lot of short statements by Jesus in the Gospel of John. What you have is recorded conversations that Jesus has with people. There's a lot more dialogue and, and maybe a little less action on it. The other Gospels have story after story after story of miracle and teaching, and then he did this, and then he did that. And the Gospel of John really zeroes in on, I mean, it's somewhere in the neighborhood of a dozen actual stories. It doesn't just pile them all in there, but it gives you an in-depth look at a few stories. It's also written differently in just the, the, the way the language is structured. It, it's written, and oftentimes it's, it's written with elements of even poetry in it. And we'll see that in a minute when we start reading the beginning. But the thing about Jewish poetry or Hebrew poetry is that there's a lot of repetition. If you were to try to point out uh, a characteristic of English poetry, you would say, that things rhyme in English poetry. And I know that if anyone in here is an English major, they're probably rolling their eyes and being really frustrated that I said that the characteristic of English poetry is that things rhyme. But on a, on a working man's level of English poetry, the kind of person who says movies are better than books, <laughs> the poetry rhymes, all right? In Hebrew poetry, there's repetition. The artfulness of it is saying the same thing differently, which can be cumbersome for us when we're reading Hebrew poetry in English. Something's lost in transition, and I feel like I'm just reading sentence after sentence and saying the same thing, and my cultural reaction to that might be to skip. I'm only going to read every other sentence. I'm still going to get the basic idea, but what I'm supposed to do when I start reading that kind of a thing, what would have happened for a Hebrew is instead of thinking I'm going to skip, they would think I'm going to slow down. This thing is repeating it, it's saying it over and over again because it's offering little tweaks, little differences in how it says it. It's giving me opportunities to come away with something different if I slow down enough to read it. 
A theme that we're going to carry into this Gospel of John series is slowing down when we study it. And I feel like this is an extremely dangerous theme to carry in our day and age because we don't like to do things slow. I mean, who wants to turn on an oven when you can put it in the microwave, right? And I know some of you that are holy will turn on the oven over the microwave, but, uh, but that's always been a struggle for me. Uh, so let's get in here. We're going to go John chapter 1, verse 1, nice and slow. I apologize because I'm throwing it up there, and I realize this is the one slide. This is the one slide where I forgot to move it to the top. So, uh, <laughs> so we're a little short on getting through this. But don't worry, I've got the whole thing here on my Kindle. Uh, John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, and through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. And in him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. Look, there we go. That one's better. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So we're seeing some repetition in that passage right away, right? In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. We'll talk about that in a minute. But he also says, sorry, this thing's moving forward when it's supposed to go back. He also says, he was, he was in the beginning, he was with God, and he was with God in the beginning. And you're meant to stop, and you're meant to pause on that statement. He was with God in the beginning. He is God. In the beginning, he was with God. He was with God in the beginning. In the beginning, he was with God. And you're meant to just settle on that thought and to, and to, to consider that. Let it soak into the, the material of your soul and let it become something that is rich and truth that holds you fast. Through him, all things were made. Nothing in this world has been made that wasn't made through him. And you're like, yes, through him, all things were made. And then you stop and think, there's nothing in this world that was made without him. Absolutely nothing. Everything that I look at, everything that I see in this world was somehow brought into existence from this word that was with God in the beginning. John starts with the statement, in the beginning. And to his original audience, this would have been like a, 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 a little verbal clue, right? In the beginning. They would start thinking right away, that sounds familiar. If you're familiar with Scripture, go ahead and tell me. That sounds familiar, right? Where's that from? Yeah, it's from the beginning, right? In the beginning is the phrase from the beginning of Scripture. Genesis 1 verse 1. And what John is doing here is extremely strategic. And we do this all the time. We're just maybe not so aware of it. So, uh, I don't if you remember. If, I don't know if you remember, but a couple of years ago, all of the local Fourth of July festivities had been canceled because there's a pandemic going on, and people want to be away from each other. That's one of the things we've been told to do. And there were some people who felt like, no, we want to celebrate the country's birthday. We want to still have a great big old get together, and and we we want to do this. And so they branded it a We the People rally. Now, why did they say we the people? As Americans, what do we think of when we hear that phrase, we the people? We think of the Declaration of Independence, right? And so the whole idea is what we are wanting to do 
is tied to what they were wanting to do then. I'm using this language to connect these two ideas and to try to, to bring what is happening now in connection to something that is historically valuable for you. John's doing this precise thing. He says, in the beginning, and he's trying to tie this idea of what I am about to say about Jesus Christ is the same thing. It's the same story. It's tied, connected to the beginning of our scriptures. It's tied to the book of Genesis. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was formless and empty, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. The Hebrew version of that would have said, In the beginning, Elohim created the heavens and the earth. And the Spirit, or the breath of Elohim, the word would have been breath of Elohim, was hovering over the waters. And so right away, John wants you to connect Jesus with the creator from the beginning of scriptures. He's making the claim that Jesus is that word or that the word is this, this God who was there in the beginning. The word was with God and the word is God. Now, in this moment, and I imagine uh, John's Greek audience would have struggled with this because uh, Greeks love logic. We love logic. Our culture has been heavily influenced. All of Western culture has been heavily influenced by ancient Greece. And so when he says the word was with God and the word was God, that's something that we go, wait a minute. How can you, if you're with someone, you have to be something, someone different than them. If, if I told you I went to the store with Ryan, right away you're like, James and Ryan are two different people, Right? And there better be a Ryan somewhere. James is crazy. <laughs> but then if I told you, hi, I'm Ryan, you're like, oh, that's Ryan Motes. And then when Ryan steps up here to do announcements, you're like, wait a minute. He's something different. And so John is right away throwing a logical puzzle into his writing. Is he doing that because he's sloppy or because he just doesn't care or he's intentionally wanting to confuse you? No. He's doing that because he's wanting to invite you into a, a way of thinking about God that might be a little different than how you've thought about God before. Again, for his Greek audience, this would have been difficult because logically this doesn't make sense. But for members of his Hebrew audience, to his Jewish audience, especially those who would have been familiar with the scriptures and would have been familiar with different ways of thinking about God, this would have been right in line with this traditional view of God. This word Elohim is, is actually a plural word. And so that's messing the lines between one individual and the next. And then we have these different concepts in the Old Testament that the, the Hebrews were familiar with, like the angel of the Lord or this blurring of singular and plural entities. We have this idea that somewhere in God, there's a plurality of persons. That while God is one... The prayer of the Israelite was, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Well, God is one, there is also somehow a multiplicity of persons within this God. And all John is doing is connecting the dots. I'm telling the same story. That God in the Old Testament, this God who exists in a plurality of persons, 
I am now giving you another picture of that God, and this is all going to line up with that. These things are all going to connect, and you're going to see it. I learned this week that even buried in the ancient Hebrew language of Genesis 1 verse 1, in the beginning, God created. I learned that there's hints of sonship even in that word created. That in the Hebrew, you, you could read that in the beginning, the son of God, if you wanted to. Obviously, interpreters haven't uh, chosen to read it that way, partly because it'd be extremely confusing for us, but also because we don't have that same connection between sonship and created. Although we could see where that connection gets made, right? Like, I mean, children are created. They're made. They're made by us, and they're, they're evidence of our ability to create life. And so we can see the connection, how the connection might be there. Um, in the Hebrew language, that connection is there built into the language. Um, so this is super important because here John is leaning into a story that's thousands of years old, leaning into traditions that are thousands of years old as he's building claims and beginning to write a narrative about who Jesus is. John didn't write his gospel, just one man inventing a new story about God, just coming up with something different because he's somehow more enlightened or more insightful than all the human beings who have ever come before. That's not what he's doing at all. We do have some religions that were founded that way, but ours is not. Ours is built on revelation upon revelation. Ours is nodding towards the wisdom of the ancients who have gone before us Instead of coming in and telling a whole new story, it's building on that story and giving a new, a new version, a more clear version of it. Um, he, chooses, uh, he also turns to ancient Hebrew literature when he chooses a title for this distinct person of God that he's beginning to build a case that Jesus is. He uses the, the, the phrase, the word, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God. This is straight from Psalm 33. I know you knew that. Uh, but Psalm 33 says that by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. And so even as John is trying to say, what title do I give to this Messiah character in the beginning of my gospel? He goes right to the Hebrew literature and he says, you know what? I'm going to settle on this word right here. And you know that he has Psalm 33 in his mind when he chooses that. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made and their starry hosts were made by the breath of his mouth. There's another beautiful picture of God, multiplicity of people, the breath, the spirit. Remember? The spirit of God. Um, you could read Proverbs 8 sometime, and you, and you could argue that maybe John should have chosen the wisdom of God. In the beginning was the wisdom of God, and the wisdom was with God, and the wisdom. He could have chosen that because that's another uh, beautiful kind of word picture of God in Proverbs chapter 8. Anyhow, uh, so John's original audience is getting it. Maybe, especially the Jews, because they're seeing these connections to their traditions. And, and yet, John is about to write something that, that would, would, is meant to blow the minds of his entire audience. And I think us today as well. Uh, we've become really conditioned to this next line, but the truth should leave us stunned every single time. This is verse 14. Uh, he says, The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. 
The stunning part of this claim is that John is saying that the Word, the Eternal One, the, the God through whom everything was made, the Word became flesh. He clothed himself in the stuff of humanity. The, the word that's, that he uses there saying dwelt among us has ties, the, the Greek word has ties to the ancient Hebrew word of tabernacle. And the Hebrews understood a tabernacle. I've been reading through Exodus in my own Bible reading program and reading through the, uh, the instructions for building the tabernacle. Boy, that's a lot of fun, let me tell you. Um, but the, the, the Hebrews had this tent, the Israelites had this tent that God had given them orders on how to make it, and then they brought the, these kind of uh, relics into it, these religious relics into it, and this is the tent where people met with God. And it's as if John is saying, the Word became flesh and came to dwell upon, uh, among us. The Word became flesh and became the meeting place between God and and humanity here among us. And we're meant to be reading this and going, oh yeah, the meeting place, just like the tabernacle. Oh, and it's there in the language. It's like the word tabernacle. The word became flesh. The eternal one, the, the, the God of all the universe, became human and became the meeting place between us and the divine. He came from the Father full of grace and truth. I think when we read words like grace and truth now, in our minds we think of grace as like, grace is being forgiving, right? Grace is not holding people's sins against them. And, and that's a good way to think of it. And we think of truth, we think of those things that are real. I mean, if I say that this is truth, you're like, yes, and that means it's real. There's a boat sitting on the corner in front of the Roxy. I can say that with integrity. It's sitting out there. I don't know why it's sitting out there. I guess it's advertising the seafood restaurant that's across the street. But the fact that there's a boat sitting on the corner, even though that sounds somewhat absurd because you know that we don't live in in, uh, places where we have canals, it's true, right? You know that that is real. There's a boat. You You would come and you would expect a boat to be out there or you would decide James is a liar. When When uh, John uses these words, grace and truth, though, he's meaning something different, especially because he says full of grace and truth. And this is where his Jewish audience, like you, when we said in the beginning, you knew where that came from, full of grace and truth for the, for the Hebrew audience, they go, oh, we've heard that before. Where have we heard that? Full of grace and truth. And it's because in that, in that line, John is quoting Word for word, in the Greek, he's quoting the Greek version of Exodus 34. This scene where Moses is on the mountain meeting with God in Exodus 34, it says, The Lord came down in a cloud and stood there with Moses and proclaimed his name. He said, The Lord. And then he passed in front of Moses and he proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in love and faithfulness. That phrase when God describes himself as abounding in love and faithfulness is translated in the Greek scriptures, full of grace and truth. And what John is trying to do is connect this word of God, this person Jesus Christ, with the Lord who revealed himself to Moses. He's saying the Lord was full of grace and truth. And Jesus came 
full of grace and truth. And then the next thing that John says is profound. He says, out of that fullness, God is full of grace and truth. The Word is full of grace and truth. Jesus is full of grace and truth. He says, out of that fullness, God who is full of grace and truth and out of the abundance of who He is, we have now received greater revelation. In Jesus Christ, out of that fullness, we've received a grace upon grace. The NIV translates it, a grace in place of grace. I don't really like that verbiage because it kind of, when we think of replacing, we think of throwing things away. And the language of Scripture is not, we didn't replace it and throw it away. It's, it's, it's a language of fulfillment. It's now fulfilled. And so I like grace upon grace. Uh, but anyhow, uh, John says, we have received grace in place of grace. The law that was given through Moses was a grace. God met his people who, and in that scene that was on Exodus 34, Moses on the mountain, God proclaims his name. That's the scene where God writes on the tablets the Ten Commandments. And this was God's response to the people sinning and building an idol and turning away from God. So this God meets our sin. He meets it with a revelation of himself. It's a grace. God reveals himself to us even in our moments of falling away. So the, the one grace was revealed in the law through Moses, and then now another grace, a second grace, a grace upon grace, grace and truth, are now being revealed in Jesus Christ. This is a greater grace that Scripture talks about. It's, it's a new revelation. It's building on the old one and giving us a more full picture. Verse 18, he says, No one has ever seen God but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is, the close, and is in closest relationship with the Father, he has made God known. But John's original audience had this idea about God. He's, he's, he's far above. He's spirit. We've never seen him. Anyone who would claim to, to have seen God is, is, you know, is out of line. And John says, yes, no one has seen God, but there is a Son of God who himself is God. And this Son of God, He is God, and He is dwelling in closest relationship with God. He has made Him known. Uh, I was reading through different translations because I was like, uh, every now and then they update translations of the Scripture. And the NIV was updated, I don't know, my guess would be five years ago or so, maybe ten years ago. Um, don't quote me on that. Look it up. Um, but I was like, man, that's not how I remember it going. What? What, it, what was the phrase that I remembered right there? Not, the one, not uh, the one and only Son who himself is God and is in closest relationship with the Father. He has made him known. I was like, what, what am I more used to? And, and, and then so I looked it up, and it was this. The one and only Son who is in the Father's bosom. I was like, yeah, that's it, right? Some of you are like, yeah, that's it. That was it. The one who is dwelling in the Father's bosom. Obviously, for people that were translating into English, they're like, they're, they're going back and they're saying, what is the original language trying to translate here? What are they trying to communicate here? And the whole idea of being in someone's bosom is like, that's, that's, a, lost, that's a lost concept in our society. So um, I hear some of you snickering. That's not, that's, uh, we're not going to talk about it anymore. All right. Um, John is saying that Jesus Christ is the opportunity to see God. Jesus Christ is the opportunity to see the one who has created everything. For John, Jesus is the opportunity to walk 
and to talk and to see face to face that entity who made everything that we see and everything that we understand and, and everything. And so John is writing this gospel because he believes that Jesus represents the opportunity for anyone who would receive him and believe in his name. It's another line from John chapter 1. He believes that Jesus is the opportunity for anyone who would receive him and believe in his name. He represents an opportunity for that person to dwell in the light of God, to be able to see God and to, and to understand God and to be welcomed into the family of God as his children. So our study in this book is going to be all about the Spirit slowing us down so that we can walk with Jesus and be with Him. It's, it's an exercise in allowing uh, uh, Scripture to open our eyes and to see something different than we've seen before. And so I hope as we read through this, and, and hopefully maybe you would make it a part of your own personal devotions to spend time reading the Gospel of John and meditating on it. Hopefully that idea, those moments when you think in your head, I've heard this before, I've seen this before, there's nothing to get here. That's when you would know, no, now is when I slow down, now is when I dig in, now is when I'm patient enough to allow this revelation, this unique revelation that God has given us to bring something more into my life, to add to my picture of God. And the prayer is that as we do this together, Jesus Christ would become much more incredible than any of us would have ever thought before, that he would become greater and larger and grander than we ever would have believed before. 